Deadwood Soundwell. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Hi, welcome to Living With Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Peltz, Certified Dog Behavior Consultant. This is from um, Hemopet with Dr. Jean Dodds. I'm a big fan of Dr. Jean Dodds. I was talking with my vet friend, Kitty. Jean Dodds is very different from the comes to veterinary medicine because she, she aims to do preventative medicine, and that's not traditional for human medicine or veterinary medicine. It's wait until they get sick and then cut it out, drug it, or somehow work with it. But she gets into preventative things. And Kitty was just telling me that she saw some veterinarians declaring that she was a quack and they needed to just outlaw her and remove her license. And it's like, oh, really? But that's what happens in the real world. That's what happens. You know, I can remember, you know, Dr. Ian Billinghurst. I'm a huge fan of him. It would go back to the 90s when he wrote, Give Your Dog a Bone. And I've been dealing with the raw diet learning about it, dealing with it, doing it ever since then. And he was, he wasn't able to get articles printed in the veterinary journal. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's out there. These guys, I think they're gods and they don't want to be challenged. They may not either want to learn either. So there you go. Okay. So this is from Dr. Dodds, behavioral effects of a companion dog loss on a cohabiting companion dog. In other words, if the dog that you have has just lost his household friend, what about that? So she says, many of us have two or more companion dogs will notice behavioral changes that we perceive as grief related if one of the pets is very ill or dies. As fellow pet parents, we know this to be true and have our own personal anecdotal stories. For researchers, anecdotal beliefs or reports are problematic. They recognize that pet parents may be projecting their feelings of grief onto the companion dog, confounding the matter or factors that may change such as household dynamics, pet parent behavior, or habits that may impact the surviving dog's behavior. Researchers have observed mourning habits, that's like in being in mourning, not the time of the day mourning, right. and rituals of many species such as dolphins, elephants, and primates in the wild. In those circumstances, researchers are simply observing and are usually devoid of a personal attachment. True, they could form an emotional bond and project some bias, but they are not interacting or affecting the outcome. Another factor that compounds the issue is that behavioral responses to death have rarely been observed in wild or feral dogs. A great basic survey that quantified behavioral changes in companion pets was completed in 2016 by Jessica Walter, Natalie Warren, and Clive Phillips in Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand, titled Owners' Perceptions of Their Animal's Behavioral Response to the Loss of an Animal Companion. And she says, we encourage you to read it. A couple of years later, researchers having different specialties published a questionnaire directed at Italian dog owners who had lost at least one companion dog from a minimum of a two-companion dog household. Then they applied various methodological scales to analyze the responses, not only for pet humanization, but also for pet bereavement for another pet. Eventually, they published a paper called Pet Humanization and Related Grief, Development and Validation of a Structured Questionnaire Instrument to Evaluate Grief in People Who Have Lost a Companion Dog. 
With this foundation, the team was able to expand and complete another study, Domestic Dogs, Canis Mulieris, Grieve Over the Loss of a Conspecific. This study gets really interesting because it provided comparisons based upon the type of bond two companion dogs may have. They asked if the cohabiting companion dogs were friendly, agonistic, mutually tolerant, parentally based, meaning a parent and offspring, or on both observer observation and the genetic association towards one another. They also inquired about the activities or areas the two dogs might have done together, such as sleeping together, playing, sharing food, and grooming. Then they observed behavioral changes such as playing, sleeping, eating, fear, vocalization, elimination, attention-seeking, and level of activity once one dog might have passed on. They found out that a friendly and parental relationship. And to be sure, there are many instances where the survivor come in, comes into her own. At last, I can get the, deserve, the attention I deserve. Not all pets that live together treasure that situation. That, that's my added note. I think it, it does happen that people don't realize that you have a, a number of dogs in the household, and this would be true with cats as well. And you're thinking that they're, they're buddies, that they, they're doing fine. When in, and actually, they're just cohabiting. They're, they're tolerating one another as compared to the kind of interaction that indicates they're friends. And when one of them moves on, whether it's rehomed or it, it gets sick and dies, the, the remaining one says, aha, I can finally have the place to myself, yippee. <laughs> so we have, we have a number of possible scenarios that can take place. They may grieve over the loss of a friend, and they may just have a, a, a block party. So you have to know. <laughs> I've seen both. <clears throat> and um, the, the dog grieving over a best friend dog is pretty amazing. Yeah, they're, they're, going, they're, they're hunting all over the house. They're checking out why, you know, at certain times of the day when certain things will be happening, why their friend isn't there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Whining, <laughs> sitting where they used to sleep together and just yeah. cry, crying, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. Yeah. There's, there's definitely, there's no question about it. And it's, it's, it's important, I think, that we're giving more attention to these conditions, that we're more aware of the fact that our dogs are such sentient creatures. Yeah. And it, and this business is, we'll just go get another dog. That's You can't buy me a friend. You can't buy my dog a friend. Right. If you add a dog to your household, remember, you're adding it for you. And if you do it well and you do it properly, you may very well end up having them be friends. But it doesn't mean that you're going to go buy them a friend. You may develop a friendship for them and with them. But you can't buy it. That's not the way it works. No, so are that, there yeah. still people out there who think that they the dogs aren't grieving and it's just us, the dog owners, affecting the dog's behavior because we're grieving? I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah but there are people that believe the world is flat. So that's not. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good point, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, the, whatever thought you could come up with, there's somebody out there that believes it. And what's interesting, that's I true. think, is that. Whatever it is you want to believe, if you search hard enough and long enough, you'll find somebody to support you. Or something to support yes. you, mm -hmm. some idea yeah. or opinion or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But no, like I said, you've seen it. I've seen it. I know most of our listeners have seen 
these dogs in these different behaviors that let us know they are sentient, they are thinking, they have feelings. They have feelings, right? And uh, and it's 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 wonderful that we're getting more of this information to the surface now. How much? How how many people access information from Dr. Gene Dodds? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mm. doubt that it's a huge number compared to people that are just going along. Um, so it's that's why I think it's important that that we here with living with your dog presentations try to expose people to ideas that they may not be readily encountering in their regular day-by-day existence. We can't can't count on our veterinarians for much of this because they don't study behavior in vet school. They don't study nutrition in vet school. So while there may be a good place to start, I think you have to go beyond that much of the time simply because that's not where their priorities have been when they have gone to, to vet school. So it depends on how much they have branched out into alternative approaches. So for example, preventative medicine, that's not what medicine, human or canine veterinarian is about. It's about cut it out, cure it, drug it, whatever. Whereas what we really want is to prevent these things from happening. And, and that means we observe behavior, we observe conditions, we observe health, and we try to work to get those things to be better all around. And, and that's where I have a lot of respect for Dr. Dr. Jean Dodds. And that's what we do here. We offer those resources to our listeners and topics that you don't always think about. I mean, this, this, um, the effect of the dog who lost a best, a dog, best friend. That's not something that's often talked about or, or no, discussed, you no. know, it's, so and I, it, it I, is I find something it pretty interesting. And in there's the grieving end of it. You know, you're grieving, your dog is grieving, your dog is affected by your grief. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot going on when this happens. Now, there's a lot to be considered. It's not a real simple situation. And dogs, so do you think they're smart enough to know that it's death? No. I don't okay. Think so. Okay. But they know that the, their best friend is no longer there for yes. Uh, there's for there's some situations where the the pet has been put to sleep in the household. I had that done once. And the resident dog sniffed, yep. did not mm-hmm. seem to have any particular reaction that I wasn't able to observe anything. And I think that from what I've read, that's pretty consistent that they may sniff the dog, but it doesn't appear like, oh, dear, what has happened? You know, you're right. gone. I, I don't think that um, I'm not I don't know that animals can register death. Right. Well, that makes sense, but but they they know something's wrong. Okay, so yeah. I, I I witnessed a similar situation that you just mentioned, where uh, the best friend dog had died, and these two were best of friends. These two dogs, and um, they had the dog that was alive uh, look at the you know sniff and witness the the dead dog, and it sat there and just cried. Yeah, interesting. I mean, they knew something was wrong. Right. They, mm-hmm. Again, they probably, you know, don't know the idea of death, but they knew that. It wasn't a normal. It wasn't the routine situation. Yeah, that their best friend sitting there was no longer there. Right, right. Not responding. 
Right. Yeah. That. There, and you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. That. Yeah. It. It, it really is. Uh, again, the, the degree of you know they're sentient creatures and they're being affected. They're they're aware of our feelings, but they have their own feelings as well that are independent of what we are projecting. So it's, it's an important thing to, to recognize. Yeah. It's heartbreaking, but it's also beautiful <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, because it actually proves the sentient being of yeah, dogs. Yeah, it's true. It's true. No question about it. Okay, pet food news. This is from our dear friend Susan Fixton. The truth about pet food. Pet feed marketing in a veterinarian quiz. She says, quiz directed at veterinarians was sent to me, meaning she's Susan, by a well-known and trusted holistic veterinarian. I won't share the name of this veterinarian because the quiz is only accessible to veterinarian members of Clinician's Brief, a publication for small animal veterinarians. And because I was able to access the veterinarian-only quiz, I don't want to get anyone into any trouble. The problem with the quiz is the biased information it presents to our veterinarian as uniform facts, such as the quiz tells veterinarians that home prepared pet foods made from 100% human grade ingredients is no healthier than a feed grade commercial diet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really? Of course, they neglect to disclose to veterinary quiz takers that feed grade pet foods are allowed by FDA to source ingredients from diseased or non-slaughtered animal material. The quiz also discussed the nutritional benefits of byproducts, again, with no mention of inferior and potentially dangerous quality feed grade byproducts. And keep in mind that byproducts may not in themselves be detrimental, after all, if your animal ate the whole rabbit or the whole chicken, it would be eating the byproducts. But because the byproducts are not as expensive as all the meat and the, the really desirable parts, it's not well cared for. So there's a, there's a treatment and, and potential care of it that influences the health benefits. Okay. So the quiz also tells veterinarians that carbohydrates are a quality source of nutrition for fats. Really? although they did disclose more research is needed. Now, cats are obligate carnivores. They, dogs don't require carbohydrates. Cats shouldn't even be given them. Forget about meeting. So no great surprise, the quiz reports that prescription ther- slash therapeutic diets are more effective than, quote, over-the-counter pet diets. The quiz neglects to tell veterinarians that therapeutic pet diets are allowed by FDA to make drug claims to cure, treat, or mitigate disease without being held to any drug safety requirements. And this of recent years, recent months actually, has been bringing these so-called prescription diets into closer scrutiny because they, they are really not legal, able to tell you that they're treating diseases. They're not, they're not able to do that. And having read the ingredients in some of them, it's, it's scandalous. It's scandalous. I remember one Hills science diet, prescription diet started with corn. Okay. Okay. Further, the quiz neglected to tell veterinarians that therapeutic diets can be made with inferior and potentially dangerous feed grade ingredients. And again, vets are not paying attention to this. You know, they, they do not study nutrition in vet school nor does your human medical doctor. 
uh, and what I've heard over and over and over again, not just once, what probably happens more often than, than not is some couple of hours worth of presentation by Hills or Purina about how to read dog labels, you know, the dog food labels. It's, they're, they're not getting nutrition. It's not considered a priority by them. I, it is for me. So she goes on to say this quiz was little more than pet feed marketing in quiz form. The veterinarian that shared the quiz with me so correctly pointed out that the quiz neglected to mention significant points, and it will unfortunately give practicing veterinarians biased information that will unfortunately be preached to pet owners. Until more veterinarians are educated to the dramatic differences between feed and food, pet owners will continue to face challenging discussions with them. If you experience a challenging conversation with your vet, feel free, please to use the resources on this website, and that's, that's um, the truthaboutpetfood.com. Uh, what might be helpful are the, the educational documents linked under Learn More in the sidebar of any post on the website. And those are human grade and feed grade. Do you know the differences, what they are between feed grade and human grade? And there's a place to click. The regulations, pet food is regulated by federal and state authorities. Unfortunately, authorities ignore many safety laws and that's, that's heartbreaking, really. You've got the laws on the books, and they're not even being recognized, let alone enforced. Wow. Many styles of pet food, an overview of the category styles, legal requirements, and recall data of commercial pet food in the United States. Again, these are all links. And did you know that all pet food ingredients have a separate definition than the ingredient in human food? And we've talked about this before. When you go into the supermarket and you see a sign saying chicken and 99 cents a pound or whatever, you know what that chicken is. The pet feed industry will not give you a definition. And so what you're inclined to do is you see chicken in the dog food and you're thinking chicken. There isn't, they will not allow definitions to be acknowledged, written, formed, whatever. So when you think chicken, what may actually be there are beaks and feet and feathers. Yeah. So it's it's an important part of what we attempt to do with this program is to create awareness so that you can make better judgment calls. Okay. So she says, we know that the pet feed industry isn't going to be fully transparent with veterinarians about feed grade products, but we can be wishing you and your pet the best, Susan. So there you go. Wow. Still more yeah. nonsense and drama and s manipulation and suppression, and misleading. Uh, one of the things that struck me uh, in that article by Susan Thixton was the fact that she said that the it's a pet feed marketing in the form of a quiz that they're giving to vets and the vets are going to turn around and pass the information along to their dog owners. Mm-hmm. And it just continues the cycle of lies and and gross food. Absolutely. Sure. Now, keeping in mind this theme for today's show, the Animal Wellness Magazine has myths about raw food diet for dogs and cats. Rumors about raw food are rampant. Let's set the facts straight by looking at five common falsehoods about feeding dogs and cats a raw food diet. Raw feeding isn't new but it's still not widely understood. Many people remain wary about offering their dogs and cats raw diet due to the volume of misleading information 
that's been shared over the years. And this blog will debunk a few of the common myths about raw food for pets and look at why this dietary option is actually one of the most nutritionally beneficial choices you can make for your fur baby. Myth number one, raw food is unsafe. There's no getting around of it. Handling raw meat poses a risk, but chances are you handle it when cooking for your home, your human family members, right? There's really no difference when it comes to safe practices for handling raw pet food. <laughs> Avoid using, using wooden cutting boards, dishes, and utensils. Wash your hands thoroughly with soap and warm water if handling the meat. And many companies offer easy-to-open pre-portioned packaging to make this process even more simple and safe. Worried about your pet getting a foodborne disease? Fear not. Cats and dogs' digestive systems are much shorter and more acidic than ours, meaning they're designed to take on any bacteria that may be present in their food. Myth number two, raw feeding takes a lot of work. It's true that feeding a raw diet to pets used to be quite complicated. And certainly, it's much easier to just open a bag of kibble. It involved a lot of pre-planning, portioning, and preparation. But nowadays, due to the steps companies are taking to pre-portion, pre-portion their raw meals and include the appropriate amounts of bone, organ, and supplements, raw feeding has never been easier. If you offer a frozen raw option, food for up to four days can be defrosted at the same time stored in the fridge, so you don't have to take food out of the freezer every day. Many products don't require any additional prep to thaw and serve the appropriate amount. Now, to be sure, preparing a raw diet yourself is much more time-consuming, but a lot less expensive than when you're buying it already prepared for you. Okay, myth number three. Raw food is unaffordable. As with any diet, the amount you spend will depend on the size of your pet. If you have a chihuahua or a tabby cat, you'll need to spend a lot less on pet food than someone who has three Great Danes. Pound for pound, raw is slightly more expensive than most kibbles or canned food, but over the long term, opting for high, higher quality diet will end up saving you money. Think about it. Health starts with diet, nutrition. So if you invest in a biologically appropriate food that helps your fur babe thrive, you'll wind up spending less on medication and vet bills down the road. This is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Keep in mind, one of those vet bills is at least semi-annual teeth cleaning. That's expensive. It's traumatic. The dog has to be under a general anesthetic, which is not the best way to go. And 20 minutes after the first bite of kibble, that accumulation on, the, on the, gums, the teeth and the gum starts all over. Okay. Myth number four, a raw food diet for dogs consists of just raw meat. If you've never fed raw before, it's easy to assume the diet consists of nothing but raw meat. But this isn't actually the case. Proper raw diets for dogs and cats are made up of meat, bone, organ, meats, vegetables, and supplements. All of these elements are needed in proper proportions to ensure your pet maintains their health. Myth number five, you can't feed both raw and kibble. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. In fact, if you're considering switching your dog to a raw diet, it's best to make the transition slowly over a period of one to two weeks. One suggestion is to not feed both kibble and raw on the same meal. When making the switch to raw, or if you choose to, to feed both over the long term, feed raw in the morning and kibble in the evening, for example. This goes for both dogs and cats. Tip supplementing your pet, pet's kibble-based diet with raw food is an affordable way to give his diet a boost. And there's a, a site for raw feeding, tailblazerspets.com. The, uh, the reason I was told for not feeding raw and kibble 
at the same time is that they digest differently. Raw digests very rapidly, kibble digests very slowly. So it's better to not put them together and you're challenging the system. And uh, as uh, raw dog food proponents, we've heard all of these rumors, haven't we? Oh, dear, indeed. indeed. These, these are the things that people come back at when you suggest off feeding mm-hmm. their dogs raw yeah. food. Yeah. It's unsafe. It's a lot of work. It's unaffordable. <laughs> yeah. And the veterinarians, I bet, uh, you know, what, almost all of them, it just takes it an alternative medicine vet to, to help you. And they're all going to be, you know, shaping, shaking their finger in your face saying you're going to kill your dog. Okay. Right. So from Susan Pixton, again, unusual but typical FDA warning letter to a raw pet food. The FDA issued a warning letter to OC raw pet food on February 23rd, 2022. Some very strange things were included and not included in the FDA warning. And the warning itself appears to be minor issues that don't seem to warrant an official warning letter. Transparency note, OC Raw Pet Food is a brand that is included on the 2022 list. This FDA warning letter does not change my personal opinion on the brand, she says. It remains a brand I would trust to give my own pets. I've spoken with OC Raw and learned a few other things not mentioned in the FDA letter. The first strange issue of the warning letter was FDA stating they inspected this very small pet food plant from April 16, 2021 through May 26, 2021. If the FDA was not working on weekends, this means it was inspecting this raw food manufacturer for 29 days. But OC Raw told me the FDA was at their plant from March 31st through May 26th, a total of 41 business days. OC Raw is a very small manufacturer by comparison. And there are two photos here. Below are Google Earth images of the OC Raw plant next to the Hills plant that was responsible for manufacturing the excess vitamin D pet foods recalled in early 2019 that killed a lot of dogs. And we're talking, you know, blocks for Hills and a little tiny spot over there for this one company. And as comparison, the FDA performed an inspection at the above Hills manufacturing facility after their deadly excess vitamin D recall from February 1 through February 19, 2019 and March 25th to 27, 2019, only 16 days in total. Why did FDA spend so much time, almost triple the days at a raw pet food plant than it did at a feed grade plant responsible for serious illnesses and pet death of pets? The very next strange thing in this warning letter is this quote. This inspection was conducted in response to a class one recall initiated on B4 of B4, lot number B4, due to the presence of salmonella and listeria monocytogenes detected by whatever. The FDA redacted the recall dates in this warning. Why recall notices are required to be public information. Typically, only private company information is redacted by FDA. To compare to typical FDA warning letters, the agency included the recall date in the Hills warning letter linked above, and FDA included the recall date in the Midwestern pet food warning letter. So why did the FDA redact the recall date in the OC Raw warning letter, the reason could be the recall from OC Raw FDA that referenced in the warning letter occurred almost four years ago in 2018. The next issue in this warning letter also points out that FDA performed 100 swabs in the manufacturing area for environmental pathogens. OCA Raw told me that FDA took 180 swabs. 
The FDA warning stated they found listeria inoculum in multiple samples and listeria grade in multiple samples. Even though the FDA made a big deal of these two environmental pathogens, they are actually non-pathogenic bacteria. Oh, boy. Yeah. Research found on sciencediet.com, sciencedirect.com, states listeria inoculum, the most commonly isolated species, is non-pathogenic, as it's also generally true for, and it lists four or five other types. Why did the FDA take issue with a non-pathogenic bacteria? Was it necessary for FDA to even mention non-pathogenic bacteria? Or was FDA trying to make another raw pet food look bad, knowing that most pet owners wouldn't know these were non-pathogenic bacteria? Was their intent to scare pet owners? Personal opinion, she says. Perhaps it is my bad attitude towards FDA's selective mm-hmm. enforcement of law talking. But this warning letter appeared to be FDA grasping at straws, trying to find something, anything they could to draw negative attention to this pet food manufacturer. To perform a 41-day inspection at a tiny manufacturing plant that's responsible for no pet deaths, while only spending 16 days at a large hills plant that was responsible for hundreds of pet deaths, is blatantly biased. To classify non-pathogenic bacteria as environmental pathogens, to redact Recall dates conforms FDA bias against pet food. Encourage all pet owners, regardless of what style of pet food you provide your pet, to demand that FDA stop their selective enforcement of law. Pet food should be regulated uniformly across all styles. FDA's bias against pet food and FDA's free pass to many feed-grade pet products must stop. And you can email the agency at askcvm at fda.hhs.gov. So this is the case of follow the money. (laughs) When you're talking in terms of the raw pet food industry, they do not come across with the funds to do anything to protect themselves, let alone invest in studies to prove what they're doing is correct. It's the pet feed industry that has the bucks and they can do this and they do it. And what it says to me, however, is a little bit encouraging, and that is there has been enough of an uptake in people doing this alternative way to feed with real food that the pet food industry, the pet feed industry, excuse me, is feeling the the, 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 the brunt. They're feeling a little bit of a threat. That's a great spin on it, Charlotte. Yeah. Looking looking at the positive. That yes. means we're making a difference. That means people are changing their minds, That's changing right. what they're feeding their dogs, and the big conglomerates are freaking out. If it were not true, they wouldn't be spending the money trying to 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 do this. So they're getting a little bit That's of a, a good pinch. way to look at it. That's a good way to look at it because I was getting pretty upset about this because. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's this is ridiculous. This is the no. FDA. It's not the. It's not the. It's. It's not the big feed dog companies. Yeah, and they're it's supposed the, to be protecting us, but but you know, exactly. it's again, it's where the money is. It's exactly. Money is. So that means that the big dog feed companies are paying off the FDA. Yep. Mm-hmm. <sighs> oh yeah, and there was some something recently. I've forgotten the details, but there was a a, a board as well as um, different. Uh, people talking about the pet feed and so on. And there was a, there was a pet feed uh, member who was on both the boards. And it's like, excuse me, I don't think so. You know, yeah. you can't be 
working for that company and be expected to be fair when you're evaluating you know the, the other end of it so yeah it's- oh, so corrupt so corrupt mm-hmm. living with your dog living with your dog living with your dog with charlotte okay how about something from our dear dear friend dr patricia mcconnell is it okay to let your vet take your dog to the back and to the back is in quotes during the pandemic, my vet clinic didn't allow owners inside, and we've experienced that, of course, here. We handed our dogs off to a vet tech and stood outside waiting in the snow or the rain or the sun and paced around the parking lot. We sat in the car and checked our phones, and one vet told me some clients drove off on errands, not returning when their dogs were ready to be picked up. I wasn't thrilled about handing my dog off, but I understood. I have tremendous faith in my primary veterinary clinic, the Spring Green Animal Hospital, and appreciated their trying to keep everyone safe while providing good care for my pets. Skip tended to drop away, trot away without a backward glance, while Princess Maggie kept looking back at me. Why aren't you not coming? I had no way to answer her. I tried to forget knowing what the English-speaking Alex the African Gray Parrot said to his owner, Dr. Irene Pepperberg, when she had to leave him at the clinic overnight. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm sorry. If you've never paid any attention or investigated Alex the African Gray, he was amazing. Alex the African Gray. Amazing. This was a, a bird that died way too young. I think he was only in his 30s. He was not mimicking. He was communicating. This was not a matter of mimic. And one of the most ex- most amazing things that, that I remember of him, and there were many, many things. If you haven't investigated Alex the African, you should. They were working with another parrot. He was there. And they were trying to get the parrot to do something and Alex liked his, his nuts. He liked peanuts. And they were apparently, I think they were trying to get this parrot to imitate it, do something, and they were giving him nuts. And he was saying, I want a nut. I want a nut. And he said, N-U-T. <laughs> he had never, ever been told how to spell the word. <laughs> Whoa. That is cool. <laughs> yeah, no, he was, he was absolutely amazing. He would be able to determine, like they could put out a half a dozen different shapes, you know, a triangle, a square, round, um, and he would be able to pick it out, whatever it was that you asked, different colors, the red this and the green that. Um, Incredible. Just absolutely awesome bird that they had spent. She had spent a tremendous amount of time with him. Okay. She bought him in a pet store in Chicago. I think he was a year old at the time. And she spent uh, just uh, all kinds of time. I can remember when she was trying to get grants to investigate. And they said, what are you smoking? <laughs> you're trying to get a grant to, de- to to worry about how this dog this bird talks really i mean come on <laughs> so oh no an amazing animal amazing animal the, the stories are absolutely fantastic okay so she goes on to sing this is dr patricia mccall like most pet owners of a certain age i've had a range of experiences with the back room <clears throat> my clinic has both vets and vet techs i trust completely They have always allowed me in the back room if I request it. Most procedures are done in the rectangular exam room, the regular one, anyway, so it's rarely an issue. The UW 
that school teaching hospital graciously let me to let me in to be with Skip right after I got him for an echocardiogram. But that's very much not their usual policy. That's part of why I had an internist do the next echo at another clinic, because not all my experiences have been good. Years ago at a different clinic in Madison, and she's from the area of Madison, Wisconsin, I handed my St. Bernard off to be treated for some truly horrible hot spots an acute painful form of dermatitis. I sat in the waiting room and I told her until I heard him screaming, literally screaming. I lined back my way through a staff person who told me I couldn't go into the back room to find that my vet was shearing off not just his fur, but all the tissue involved. It must have been agonizing. I picked his 130 pound body off the table, the dog, not the vet, although in hindsight, (laughs) ripped off the muzzle, snapped on the leash and walked out. The clinic is still there 50 years later. And I think of what happened every single time I drive by. Just a few years ago, I took Kitty Nelly to a different clinic to have an abscessed wound treated. Before I could stop them, they dug out the infection without any topical painkiller. So she was oh, she was so traumatized, she emptied her bladder every time I put her in the carrying case after that. Needless to say, she and daughter Polly started going to Spring Green Animal Hospital too. All this is a long-winded lead up to today's topic, inspired by an article in Whole Dog Journal, Veterinary Visits, It's Important to Be There for Your Dog by Linda Case. In it, she argues that every clinic should allow all owners to be there with their dogs at all times. She quotes a study in France that found that heart rate and ocular temperature decreased when the owner was with the dog. The authors conclude that having an owner present is less stressful and therefore better for the dog. On the other hand, you can find a raft of articles from veterinarians about the value of letting your dog be taken to the back. My own veterinary GP, Dr. John Daly, told me that although the pandemic was hard on everyone in his clinic, in some ways it was so much easier to concentrate just on the dog in the clinic while talking to the owner before and after the dog's examination. I can get why that would be true. We humans can be pretty damn tiring, even the best of us. (laughs) I always knew I was tired when seeing my own clients when I reverted to just training the dog instead of training the owners to train the dog. Much harder stuff for sure. But I'm glad I can go into the clinic now with my pets. I try to be an easy client, but the fact is I'm still pretty picky about weapons to my dogs. For myself, I would only allow my dogs to be taken away by people I trust completely, with the exception of an emergency clinic where you simply have no other choice. And there was some additional information that found dogs were not more difficult to handle when the owner was present and showed more stress behaviors when they were absent. So she said, I would like to hear your opinion. I think that I've just always bowed to veterinarians' uh, wishes and said, okay, whatever you say, you're, you're the doctor. After reading this, I'm, 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 I'm taking a different stand. Mm. I, I want to know. I want to know, you know. Uh, now, in my case, because I'm a professional, I'm a dog behavior consultant with, with a, you know, a certificate of certification, I'm inclined to not be treated the same way that a lot of pet owners are because I have these qualifications. So I'm treated in a slightly different fashion, which um, in, makes in it, your, you mean by the vet. Yeah. By the vet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so they'll allow you, they'll probably allow you to go in the back more often than they would some right. other lay person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I know, for example, when I have had, for example, a, a dog that had to have intravenous 
um, work done that I was able to hold the dog and hold his head away from you know, keeping the biting edge away from the, the vet or vet tech trying to in, uh, get the blood sampling. And, and I was trusted to do that. So it, it, that's something that not is not likely to be the case with all dog owners that are not as experienced around dogs as I, I think I have been. So and, and I would just assume it depends on the vet and their rules of the office. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would assume now that your stance is that you are going to be telling listeners, as you often do, uh, when selecting a vet, um, you know, you, you say, uh, you know, if, if uh, they don't do something, rather, you always tell them to turn around and run. But this will be one of them. If the vet doesn't allow you to accompany your dog into the back room, turn around and walk away. Absolutely. Yeah, there are some things you just should not put up with. And I find it amazing, again, as you said, some people believe the earth is flat. I find it amazing that some vets think that having the pet owner with the dog wouldn't help the dog at all. I, that just that doesn't make any sense. I think what they're happening, what's happening is that they find it just easier to deal with the dog than having to try and deal with the people and the dog. Because the people will freak out. Oh my gosh, what are you doing to my dog? Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. I, I can see that, but I can see that there's a I reason think, for it though. Yeah, I think that it's, it's misplaced priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Okay. All right. Again, um, I look at species appropriate pet food and what to search for when selecting a brand. Okay. Now let's see who this is from. This is, um, Oh, the trailblazer's pet. Okay. If you're a natural-minded pet parent, you've probably heard the term species appropriate. But what exactly constitutes a species-appropriate pet food, and how do you know if you're choosing the right one for your fair babe? Simply put, a species-appropriate pet food is a food that your dog or cat's body is designed to eat. This type of diet contains high amounts of meat and other ingredients that companion animals can easily digest and utilize. It's the healthiest food for your pet. If our pets are to reach their genetic potential in terms of health, longevity, physical activity, and reproduction, the food they eat must closely mimic what their ancestors ate. The further an animal's diet departs from its revolutionary diet, the more health problems that animal is likely to develop. The most species-appropriate pet food available is raw food. Raw diets for dogs and cats have become increasingly popular over the past decade, as we talked about a little bit ago. And no wonder. Some of the benefits of raw diets include improved digestion, shinier coats, healthier skin, increased energy, smaller stools, and what they don't mention is much a big reduction in the stink. Hmm. It's not only smaller, but there isn't the stink involved. And the reason they're smaller is because the food is more digestible. Okay. Cooked food requires more of the animal's energy to digest. Heat processing also destroys beneficial nutrients such as enzymes and antioxidants, which are important for good health. An animal's body has a limited supply of enzymes, which must be supplied through food in order for an animal to thrive. And these enzymes and other nutrients can be supplied by feeding a raw diet, which aids in digestion and a healthy immune system. Ready to switch your brand and your dog, ready to switch your dog or cat to a species appropriate diet? Here are five things to look for. One, transparency. Find a company that publicly publishes where they source their ingredients, as well as a breakdown of the nutritional content 
other food, and third-party testing results. Two, meat as the first ingredient. Check the label. A species-appropriate diet will have muscle, meat, or poultry listed as the first ingredient, and ideally, the first three to five ingredients in a dry food. So when you're getting this stuff, even though it's dry, the, the three of the top five should be a meat source. And it shouldn't be poultry. It should be chicken or duck or turkey or beef or pork. So then you're getting that stuff. So there should be meat, such as meat meals, whole cuts, free-dried meat or organs, and it should be identified by species. Three, ingredient quality. Although it's not a requirement for species-appropriate pet foods to boast the following, it can't hurt to look for brands that are human-grade, hormone and antibiotic-free. Ingredients should not include wheat, corn, preservatives, additives, coloring, or artificial flavoring. Four, whole food ingredients. Look for a species-appropriate pet food that includes whole foods, such as fruits and vegetables, for trace minerals and vitamins, and other non-processed ingredients in their whole form. And five, variety. If you can, select a product line that includes various recipe options for dogs and cats. This makes it easier to rotate the protein, providing a wider range of nutrients and variation in your pet's diet. And that business of rotating, incidentally, and this is the trailblazersbet.com, is really important. I was just talking with somebody the other day, and they give their dog organ meat every day. And I said, I don't do that. I, one of the things that I try to avoid is anything every day, because anything that you give that often, there is a risk of intolerance or allergies. Whereas if you separate these things, then the dog isn't going to have that exposure on a constant enough level to develop the intolerances or allergies. So yes, the ingredients I mentioned, organs, for example, important, but not the same thing every day. And in changing the variety, if you're buying packaged food or you're buying frozen food, change the protein sources regularly because each one has a slightly different variety of nutrients and you can get a wider, wider variety of good stuff if you switch from poultry to beef to pork to turkey to fish to whatever. So don't stick with one because it used to be the vets would say, if your dog likes that food and gets along, don't change anything. Change right. it, change it, change it, change it. So don't stick with anything for very long. And I just want to mention that that would be the fact if you are still feeding your dog the, the dry dog feed as well. Well, when it comes to a home-prepared diet, you still want to vary it. For example, I don't, I don't mix up a batch of organ meats and turkey and pork and whatever and then have that and give it every day. So yesterday, Angie got turkey. Today, she's getting something else. So I don't give her uh, – I usually don't give her the same protein two days in a row. I will change it so that she'll get one or another. Got a question for you, though. Okay. I often hear that Angie, your dog, gets uh, two chicken wings every night. Or? She gets no. She gets two chicken feet. Feet, feet. Okay. Yeah, those are that's dessert. <laughs> and that's okay to give every day. I think so. Yes, but the the main meal, right? Okay, is always a variety. So her her she gets she gets chicken uh, neck for breakfast. She, at dinner time, she gets a variety of protein sources with a variety of vegetable fruit mixes, depending on what's seasonal. For example, this, this past week, the local supermarket had a special on uh, uh, vegetables in the 
produce department. You had broccoli and cauliflower and carrots and I don't remember what else, no, no onions. And it was it was a really good buy. So I, I bought that bag and I just lightly steamed it because they can't break down the cellulose. So you can either food process or lightly steam. And so she got that variety uh, in her her dinner. So she did get the same vegetable combination for several days in a row because of that. But, um, but from the standpoint of the protein source, I try to keep it at changing on a daily gotcha, basis. Gotcha. Protein. Yeah. So, because I think there's much more of a likelihood of developing um, a negative, either alternative, uh, either um, intolerance or um, allergy to proteins than to, uh, to vegetables. I, I just don't think that that happens very often. Hmm. All right. Okay, this is from Susan Thixton, the corned gluten meal cover-up. Ah. Oh, <laughs> okay, this is this is interesting. Again, this is really important because people are not getting this information on a readily available basis. She says, corned gluten meal is a common ingredient used in many pet foods. It's been included in cat and dog foods for decades. Corned gluten meal is used as a source of protein in pet foods. Now, keep in mind, when a person reads the percentage of protein on the pet food feed label, they're thinking it is animal protein, animal source, not necessarily. And they are never going to tell you what the percentage of animal source protein is. So here you go. Corn gluten meal is a source of protein and it's used to boost the percentage of protein so that it costs them much less money to make it. Okay. The Pet Nutrition Alliance, it's a pet food nutrition organization with close ties to the pet feed industry, states that this ingredient could provide more protein in a pet food than meat. <laughs> Ingredients high in water content, fresh meats and vegetables, may appear higher on the ingredient list than dry ingredients due to the weight contributed by water, even though that ingredient may contribute fewer nutrients to the overall diet. For example, corn gluten meal could contribute more protein to the complete formulation of a food than beef, even if beef is listed as the first ingredient, end of quote. So there you go. Beef may be what you're seeing there, but what your pet is actually getting in, as a source of protein is corn gluten meal. Even though the ingredient has remained the same for decades, there's been a recent attempt to change the name of corn gluten meal to corn protein meal. <laughs> Uh -huh. There will be no changes to the definition of the ingredient or the legal requirements. The only change proposed was the name. Why? During the AAFCO web meeting, where this was discussed on March 22nd, 2022, there were four ingredients suggested to change by the name of, but only one was discussed, almost approved at this first discussion, and that was corn gluten meal to be renamed corn protein meal. The AAFCO representative stated the name change was necessary because the ingredient contains no gluten. Is that true or is something else behind this common food ingredient name change? The possible something else. Corn gluten meal, the very same ingredient used in many pet foods, is found in Lowe's and Home Depot and the garden department sold as weed killer. Wait, what? Corn also, gluten meal is weed killer? 
Uh-huh. Also, the term gluten is on the radar of many pet owners, especially those that have suffered health consequences to gluten intolerance in their own diets. Could it be that pet food manufacturers asked AASCO for a name change because they didn't want their pet foods to include an ingredient that's also used as an herbicide? And or could it be that pet food manufacturers asked AFCO to change the name of gluten meal to something without the word gluten in it because of health issues related to gluten? Does corn gluten meal contain gluten? In the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, under substances added directly to human food, a firm as generally recognized as safe states corn gluten, and also known as corn gluten meal, is the principal protein component of corn endosperm. It consists mainly of zinc and gluten, and corn gluten is a byproduct of the wet milling of corn for starch. The gluten fraction is washed to remove residual water-soluble proteins. Corn gluten is also produced as a byproduct during the conversion of the starch in whole or various fractions of dry milled corn to corn syrups. Doesn't that sound like perfect dog food? <laughs> gluten gluten meal is a registered biopesticide with the Environmental Protection Agency. The agency states, the technical grade ingredient, active ingredient, TGAIO glutens, corn, also known as corn gluten meal, consists mainly of zein and gluten, a mixture of water-soluble proteins that occurs in most cereal grains, and to a lesser degree, fat and fiber. The active ingredient is a byproduct of the wet milling of corn starch, or as a byproduct during the conversion of the starch in whole or various fractions of dry milled corn to corn syrups. Again, this is dog food. Should this ingredient even be used in pet food? Independent pet store owner Chelsea Kent has some serious concerns about corn gluten meal, so much so that she filed a citizen petition petition with FDA asking the agency to develop a specific regulation on the ingredient for pet food use. Her petition to FDA included this concern. The ingredients sulfur dioxide, anhydrous ammonia, required for the production of corn gluten meal are registered as a toxic chemical substance with EPA and continues to be regulated under the 1990 Toxic Substances Control Act. Inventory update rule. There are also antibiotics used in the production of corn gluten meal, which are specifically forbidden in use in animals. They include Virginia myosin and erythromycin. The FDA has not provided a response to her petition. It could take them years to respond. If a pet owner would like to learn more about gluten meal, so Chelsea, there's a link there. That's with Susan Fiction. And read more how the ingredient is made is feedipedia.org. That's F-E-E-D-I-P-E-D-I-A.org. An industry resource website provides some explanation. So is the pet food industry using AFCO to change the name of this ingredient to protect themselves from herbicide or gluten concerns? And or is the pet food industry using AFCO to change the name of corn gluten meal to corn protein meal to help any legal petitions filed with FDA regarding potential risks of this ingredient salient? We don't know. But we do know that if AFCO does change the name of gluten meal to corn, gluten meal to corn protein meal, the new pet food animal ingredient would be different only in name. The ingredient itself will not change. Her personal opinion, she says, the AAFCO discussion on the name change felt like AAFCO was allowing itself to be used by industry, knowingly or not. The only one to benefit from the name change will be industry. No more questions about gluten, no more questions about herbicides, and no worries of a connection to risks filed with FDA. The worst part of this AAFCO meeting discussion was that the potential risks of this ingredient weren't even discussed 
Their only concern was changing the name. And she said she'll continue to follow the issue. That's really scary stuff. That is scary stuff. Yeah. That's very <laughs> scary. Yeah. And yeah. Chicken corn or I'm sorry, corn meal protein sounds a whole lot better than corn gluten because everybody, you know, right. there's, uh, everybody's and, and, and who knows that it's used as an herbicide, really? Yeah. Oi. All right. We have reached the end of our time together today, Charlotte. Let's do a little that? bit of review. We got through a lot, too. Uh, let's see, from Hemopet and Dr. Gene Dodds, the behavioral effects of dog loss, dogs losing their dog best friend. Uh, let's see, next from Pet Food News and Susan Thixton. Is it the FDA? The FDA gave a quiz. Was it the FDA? Gave a quiz to vets and basically. Just, just more in misinformation that they're giving to vets who are then going to give it to dog owners and in there putting their dogs at risk. Uh, next from Animal Wellness, rumors about raw pet food. Yeah, there are a ton of rumors out there. Don't believe them. Let's see. Again, from Susan Thixton, uh, the FDA inspects small food companies a hell of a lot more than they inspect the big companies. Doesn't seem fair. I wonder why they're doing it. Then from Patricia. Money, 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 money. Then from Patricia McConnell. Why do vets not let you go in the back room with your dog? Well, if they did, it would be a lot less stressful for your dog. That just seems that just seems a no-brainer uh let's see and then from trailblazer pet this is a new resource for us trailblazer pet species appropriate food dry dog feed is not appropriate for your dog to be eating it's like if we were to eat cereal all day 24 7 no and then last from susan thixton corn gluten meal cover-up apparently this is in most of the dry dog feeds this corn gluten meal and it is also in weed killers all right, Charlotte, before we head out, do you have any last words for us? Okay. Like, like many other much-loved humans, they believed that they owned their dogs instead of realizing that their dogs owned them. <laughs> Dodie Smith. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way it should be. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Isn't that cool? Okay, kiddo, I lost my library of sound, so I need you to do some sound effects for me. I don't want to do this, Dad. Look, I'm just trying to put food on the table, but if you don't want to help... All right. Hear Big's Chronicle, a galaxy of genres. Listen to the deconstruction of film on A Cosmic Void. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. Finally, a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies. Whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot, arguments about who's the MVP of the film, or crit and lit about it, you'll find it all on Fields of Glory. Listen to the show that will help you have a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement, training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast, Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones and the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. 
You can find all of Breadwood Sound Lab shows at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts.